Welcome to New Creation, a home for the creative community of Los Angeles. For more information, visit our website at newcreationla.com. And now, the sermon. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbath. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleannesses. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live, and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. The grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God will stand forever. Thanks be to God. There's a popular podcast out right now that was produced by Christianity Today, and it's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It's about a pastor in Seattle who planted this church that became a megachurch. And along the way, the pastor became very powerful, and he severely abused that power. Well, it doesn't just happen in mega churches. 
It can happen in small churches and really churches of any size. And because of that, the leadership team at New Creation has spent significant time trying to put things into place so that that does not happen here. But it's not just pastors and elders who are prone to abuse their power, but so are spouses and parents and teachers and coaches and friends and employers and co-workers. Well, our leadership at New Creation has spent time trying to present, uh, prevent this issue, not just because of some podcast, but because we see it in the scriptures. We've been going through a series on the life of David and seeing how he points to the greater king. Uh, we could also call this series The Rise and Fall of David. And today's story brings us to his fall. So I want to give us just a little bit of the backstory again. So at this point in the story of David, he is at the height of his success. And isn't it interesting that success can actually be a danger to our spiritual health? You see, for David, everything is going incredibly well, so much so he forgot that he was dependent upon God. It's so easy to assume that we are the cause of our blessing. I work so hard. I deserve this. I am self-made. And that's why Proverbs 30 tells us this in verses 7 through 9. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of the Lord, the name of my God. Well, I think verse 9 really describes David. Um, that he is so full that he denies the Lord. David feels like he no longer has to prove himself at this point in the story. And so he decides, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to delegate some of this king work. I've done enough here, right? Uh, I'm famous. Everybody knows of all I've done. I don't have to do it all anymore. So, so I'll delegate. Sounds like a reasonable idea, right? But here's the thing, 1 Samuel 8.20 tells us this, when the nation requests a king, here's what they ask for, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And so the first purpose of having a king is so that the king would go out and fight the battles for Israel, that he would lead the charge. And yet, chapter 11, the first thing that we hear is it's the time when kings go and do this. But David stayed home. David is not where he is supposed to be. And maybe this is symptomatic of just an empty soul. 
an anemic soul, right? Maybe David is just bored. He's kind of done it all, seen it all, and just feels empty. And verse 2 shows us that his his emptiness is marked by sloth. Verse 2 says, It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. So it's late afternoon, and David is just now getting up off his couch. Maybe it's a nap. Maybe he's been asleep all day. But remember this, his men are on the battlefield defending Israel. That's where he should be. And instead of fighting, he is sleeping. You see what David did here is he attended to his desires instead of his duties. And so he's just strolling along his route. He's gazing upon each rooftop below. His eyes are wandering and he sees Bathsheba and he notices she is quite beautiful. We're told that she is bathing. It's actually a religious purification bath as her body begins a new cycle. And it's the author's clever way of telling us, uh, by the way, she's not pregnant when David sees her. Now, some might inquire, well, why would Bathsheba be bathing where anyone could see her? It seems, though, that she could only be seen from the king's roof, and he's not even supposed to be there. He's supposed to be out at war alongside this woman's husband. But he is there and he sees and he asks his men, who's that? And they tell him, that's the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And so the first clue, reminder, David, this is someone's daughter that you are peering at. This is, in fact, someone's wife. And not just anyone but it's the daughter of Eliam, one of your mighty men, one in your inner circle of soldiers. And it's also the wife of Uriah, who's also one of your mighty men, and in that inner circle. But it doesn't stop him. What David does here is he just abuses his power. He sends for her. He takes her. And he sleeps with her. And all of this while her husband is on the battlefield fighting for Israel. He calls her. He uses her. And he just discards her. Just sends her home. And I think it's important for us to notice in this chapter that everything involving Bathsheba is described as happening to her. It is not her fault. David here bears all the responsibility. So a month or so goes by, and Bathsheba sends news to David. Three words, I am pregnant. I am pregnant. Now, sometimes those words 
are the most joyful words a couple can hear. Sometimes they're heard screaming, elated with joy, but sometimes they are not. Sometimes those words are said with fear, with tears, with pain. And that's the case in this situation. There is no celebrating. There is no rejoicing in this news. Now, I want to remind us that the child is obviously David's because when we first saw Bathsheba, right before he called her, she was taking that purification bath. And so David resolves to try to cover up his sin, to try to cover up his mess. This private sin, so-called private sin, is about to become very public with a pregnant woman whose husband is on the battlefield. She was sent for by the king. The soldiers knew that. The household knew that. Probably the neighbors knew that. So David's got two options here. Two options here. Own his sin or cover it up. You can see the temptation. And unfortunately, he chooses the latter. He falls to that temptation. And so he puts together plan A, which is another abuse of his power. This time it involves the army. He calls Uriah off the battlefield. And he first asks him for a report. Hey, how's it all going down there? How are the soldiers doing? How's the, how's the war going? And Uriah, it's, yeah, it's going well. It's going very well. And then David says, well, why don't, you, uh, why don't you go down to your house and wash your feet? Wash your feet was actually a euphemism for being with his wife. Go down to your house and, and wash your feet. And in fact, David's, uh, David sends a, a, a gift basket behind him, a nice, uh, uh, a nice little gift basket, I'm sure. Maybe, maybe a bottle of wine, a couple glasses, some candles. This will help uh, the cover-up here. But Uriah doesn't take the bait. He refuses to go home and instead sleeps at the palace door. And David cannot understand why. He gets word that Uriah didn't go home. And it's like, oh, you're messing up my plan. You see, he needs to, Uriah to go home and be with his wife so that uh, the appearance of this child would be that of Uriah's, not of David's. So let's take a look at what Uriah says to David. He says, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. So again, David is faced with a decision here. He can own his sin at this point, or he can hide. And again, he chooses the latter. Let's cover it up. 
And so now we move to plan B on the cover-up. He says, you know what? Why don't you stay with me one more day, and then I'll send you back. David thinks, I'll have him eat at my table, and I'll get him drunk. So drunk that he'll have to just stumble home and end up in his bed with his wife. But guess what? It doesn't work. Uriah just sleeps at the palace once again. Uh, One commentator put it like this, Drunk Uriah is more pious than sober David. So David's got a lot of power here, but it could not overcome a faithful, godly man. That man's thinking, how could I go home and be with my wife when I'm not where I'm supposed to be? I'm supposed to be with my, with my men, with my soldiers, fighting and defending our country. I can't go do that. Such piety. I have to serve the Lord. And so he refuses to come home. Well, David, again, confess or hide, chooses to hide. And so now... Plan C, another just continuation of this abuse of power. Now David's plan is this. I'm going to send a letter to Uriah's commander, Joab. And he does this incredibly cold thing. He puts the letter in Uriah's hand with the king's seal on it so that it cannot be opened to deliver to Joab. And the directions in this letter are to put Uriah in the front lines of the heaviest combat. The heaviest combat. And when Uriah steps forward, have everybody else draw back so that he is struck down and killed. And so David has Uriah carry this notice, carry his own death warrant unaware. So cold. But here's the problem. Joab, the commander, receives the order and realizes, you know what? It's not that simple. Just having everyone step back when Uriah steps forward will look awfully suspicious. And so Joab puts Uriah with a group of valiant men into a situation where they cannot win. And Uriah dies, as do the other men. And so Joab sends David a messenger with the news, and he anticipates David being angry with the report of the loss of life and poor strategy. And so he commands the messenger to tell David, you know what, one of those men that died was Uriah. And so David gets the news, and he's not mad at all. In fact, he sends the messenger back to Joab, With this message, let's take a look at verse 25. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. So David sends this message back. It is chilling. This do not let this matter displease you. The literal translation from the Hebrew is do not let this evil 
Do not let this thing be evil in your eyes. Yikes. Just move on. Don't worry about it. Let's take a look at the last two verses of the chapter. See what happens next. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So the, the news of Uriah comes back to his wife and she mourns. And when the ceremonial period of mourning was over, David brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore his child. Nine months later. And so you're thinking, what happened? How can the king of Israel, God's anointed, get away with this? There's a quote by 19th century British politician Lord Acton that you've probably heard. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. This seems to be David here. David's power has been absolutely corrupted and abused. David abused his power with Israel and not going to war, being where he should be. He abused his power with his servants, inquiring and sending for Bathsheba. David abused his power with Bathsheba, treating her like an object for his pleasure. David abused his power with Joab and calling a top soldier off the field for a cover-up. David abused his power to manipulate Uriah into sleeping with his wife to cover it all up. And David abused his power over his army to have his own men killed. David abuses his power trying to be like God. He tries to just move people around like his own little chess objects for him to abuse as he sees fit. That is not, of course, God, but that is David trying to play God. So what happened to David? David was described as the man after God's own heart. This is the shepherd boy who took on Goliath to save Israel. This is the man who made a covenant of friendship with Jonathan, the man who sought out crippled Mephibosheth and invited him to eat at his table every night. And the same David has now abused his power on every front, and he's committed adultery and murder. Well, let's take a look at the end of that last verse one more time. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So if you remember the literal of that phrase, the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. You see, David had forgotten God. He neglected to calculate the justice and righteousness of a holy God who watched the whole thing. 
Now, what's your response to this story? David, how could you? Is it self-righteousness? I would never do anything like that. Well, I heard uh, Rick Warren, pastor of Saddleback Church, tell a story several years ago. And he said that he used to keep newspaper clippings of stories of pastors who had had moral failings. And he would clip all of those and keep them in a file and periodically he would open up that file and just read all those stories in order to remind himself what he was capable of. In the upper room, Jesus said to his disciples, one of you will betray me. And they all responded, who? Is it me? They would each learn later that night what each of them were capable of. And here's the thing. If David is capable of these things, then guess what? So are you, and so am I. We hear these stories of David, and we want to identify with David on all the good stuff and say, Mmm, that's me. Yeah, be like that. I can be like that. And then we want to distance ourselves from David and say, oh, I would never do that stuff, though. That's not me. But this story shows us that true Christians are capable of committing the most heinous of sins. We sing it. We sing it in our hymns. We sing it when we sing, come thou fount. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We sing that to remind ourselves what we're capable of. Now, where do our eyes lead us to treat other people like objects for our pleasure? Maybe it's on our phones and our computers. Maybe it's in our cars as we're driving around. Do we abuse our power? Absolutely. We may not be king, but we can abuse our power as spouses, as parents, friends, co-workers. We can abuse it as Christians just to get what we want. And what this story shows us is our need for the greater king, the need for Jesus the Messiah King, the Son of God, because David can't save the world and neither can anyone else except our greater King. And so think about this. If we leave this chapter out, which uh, Jewish tradition tends to gloss over the story of David, the Talmud whitewashes David. But if we leave this story out, then we might just think that there's some slim shred of hope for humanity apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ. And so this chapter is very important. The kingdom is not safe in David's hands, but only in that of the greater king, Jesus Christ, who rules with pure justice and righteousness. In Jesus, we have a king who never 
has abused his power. In Jesus, we have a Savior who was tempted as we are, but who never fell. And his perfection is credited to us through faith. He perfectly obeyed in our place, and that is good news. It's good news that Jesus laid down his power. He humbled himself so that we could be exalted. On the cross, it was in love that Jesus gave his life to pay the price for all who have abused our power. And at the resurrection, Jesus used his power to take up his life in order to bring us new life through faith in him and all he's accomplished. And now Jesus sits at the right hand of God in power, ruling and reigning. And one day, he will return to this earth and use his power to undo all abuse, to undo all pain and even death itself. And now Jesus has given each of us the power of his Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us to transform our desires and to follow him. This is how Jesus uses his power. And Jesus has also given us a new family, the church, one another, to help each other resist such temptation. Church family, this is a difficult chapter where sin just seems to keep going like a boulder down a mountain. The sin just seems to abound. But here's the good news. Where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. That's what it tells us in Romans 5.20. And this chapter has us longing for God's grace. We've been shown our capacity for evil and our need for a greater king. And little spoiler alert, next week we'll see how God responds. And you will see grace, grace, marvelous grace. And so as we go, I want us to be reminded of this, that we need to acknowledge not just what we do, but what we are capable of. That we are prone to wander, that we are prone to leave God. And in fact, when we say, I would never, and fill in the blank of what your I would never is, that's actually the first step in that fall. And so we need to pray for ourselves and we need to pray for our leaders. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, let's pray together. Almighty God, we give you thanks for your word this morning. It is, it's difficult, it's hard to hear, but it is so important for us today to be reminded of what we are capable of, but also that we have a greater king who has never abused his power, who has always used his power for good, for justice, for righteousness. And we have a king who will return and use his power for those purposes fully and finally. And so, Lord, 
Thank you for the power that you give each of us by your indwelling Holy Spirit and by the family that you've put us in. Help us to resist temptation. Lead us away from evil. Deliver us from temptation. And so, Lord, we give you thanks for your word today. May it shape us. May it change us. We pray it in the power of your spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this sermon and encourage you to become a regular member of our online community. To find out more about the church, visit our website at newcreationla.com.